Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part five of the series called The Fountain of Youth. So, how exactly would you return to the faith of a child? How would you get over these textual difficulties that we were talking about in the previous part of, say, confusing cultural lines or violence of the Old Testament? How do you even make sense of your rebellion against your childlike faith when it may not seem like a rebellion at all, but rather an awakening to truth? So where do you go for that? Where do you go from there? Um, so asking questions can be the very thing that drives you away from trust in authority or faith in God, as reason alone seems to call for finding truth elsewhere. Like you got to go look somewhere else and find it. Um, you think you've been lied to, and now the time has come where you're going to correct it. The authority over you has been revealed to be a fraud just to keep you in your place, like keeping a foot on your head. Um, you're the victim and the freedom fighter now. So um, <clears throat> uh, just so you, to give you an idea of what this is or that notion, um, just you may recognize where you've heard that before, um, where you need to go find the truth. You need to go learn the knowledge. Um, this is actually the temptation and the fall of man. And it's funny that you can talk yourself into this or someone else can talk you into it, but this is exactly what the serpent tells Eve. Uh, this, it's this exact message persuading her that God is hiding the truth in order to keep humans lower and lesser. In fact, the snake says, God knows well that when you eat of it, meaning the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know good and evil. And that's Genesis 3 um, and famous lines, of course, everybody, I mean, if there's one book of the Old Testament, people know it's, it's uh, the Genesis and, of course, the talking snake. So um, I've said this many times, but if you had told me back in college that in my 40s I would be quoting Genesis and telling others about how the serpent talking to Eve makes total sense, I probably would have jumped off a bridge. And I'm not even exaggerating, really. Um, I mean, maybe a little. But I was in like full-blown Thomas Paine mode and teetering on Rich, Rich, Richard Dawkins' atheism. So any book I picked up regarding Genesis would have been to argue against it or mock it uh, as a fairy tale uh, to control us kind of thing because I was completely convinced that evil portrayed as a talking snake was just a scare tactic for those in authority wanting to keep control over people. And you hear this in various ways. Um, it's a notion many of us come up with, but um, but then life happened. So that's that's the the funny thing. Um, they always say there's a saying of life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. And as I talked in this exact little series of my plans were to write, my plans were to do this. Um, life happens, you know. And in those days of living, I came to realize that there are falls that we must pass through or the fall, actually, um, there's, there's kind of multiple falls of different kinds, but the main fall is this one where we become the maker of our own truth or world authority, etc. Um, every person who has ever lived must pass through the fall, like, or, or falls, but it's these, this one fall. And if you don't think you've encountered the fall, you either haven't reached it, or you may need to hike a bit farther yet. But the, th the third option is that you've had the gift of faith like a child from the beginning and never lost it. And I think those are very fortunate people. But for the rest of us, we must reach the fall. Um, the fall is the oldest trick in the book, and it's the oldest temptation, which is exactly why it's in the very beginning. 
right after the creation stories. So, you know, there's two creation stories in Genesis, which uh, automatically that throws people off from the stars. How can there be two creation stories? Well, there's like a northern tradition and a southern tradition of the Israelites. Uh, I'm not going to go into that, but that you get past those creation stories and then you have Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve are you and me, you and I. They are these uh, naive childlike humans who reach the age of reason and start to ask questions about the world. Uh, it's not even so much, I think, people get into the literal stuff of this. Um, I think you, you, you know, even the Catechism of the Catholic Church says you, you read this, you can read it literally and it works, or you read it allegorically and it works. Uh, that's the beauty of it. And I'll talk a little bit more about some of how, like, uh, stories do this. Uh, they work literally and figuratively, allegorically, morally. Um, but the experience of Eve describes my own thoughts and feelings once I reached the middle school age it, or, or even past that. I, I was no longer content with the answers I was given and I started wondering about the narrative and the rules that had been handed down to me. And once I started down that path, the fall happened. I didn't eat a literal fruit, but um, I thought I was asking questions and give, getting unsatisfactory answers. So, you know, I veered into doubt. And I was thinking much like Thomas the Apostle and Thomas Paine, the revolutionary, you know, you're thinking the wool's been pulled over my eyes. I need to see this to believe it. Um, these things don't logically connect. Something is wrong. Something is not computing. There's a short circuit going on. I don't, I don't get it. And the answers are not fulfilling me. So the lack of logical explanations increased my doubt, shaking the foundation, the entire foundation, and coupling that doubt with the weight of like hypocritical adult behavior that I could observe, the rock teetered toward tumbling down the hill, but the last nudge came simply from my own desire to push that rock over the edge because I wanted to go there anyway. It's like uh, Eve wanting to taste the fruit. So, um, and, and, and gain the knowledge, um, and, and Adam as well. And then of course, Adam blames Eve right away, which is the ultimate like cop out, uh, for, for a man. Uh, but anyway, the flow of the fall goes like this. There's like a workflow if you want to think of it, but uh, there's something I want. There's something I want and I know I shouldn't do it as I've been told not to, or advised not to. And the idea occurs to me that the rules maybe don't apply or I see others breaking the rule and that the rules are really only for like bad people, people who are bad. And if I really want to do it, I'll find someone to maybe do it with me or I'll research for some information that tells me it's okay to do. But really, if I see others doing it and not being struck by lightning, then it must be fine because others have already jumped the fence and the bull has not gored them to death. Like they're already out in the field playing and they're, they seem to be fine, you know. Um, and that's when the temptation becomes more alive. And so you start to ask, why am I prohibited from this thing? What's the big secret? Why, why can they do it? Why can't I? So I'm coaxed into moving the desire outside of my head and into action. And that's where you actually are like, you're doing the thing. There's a difference between thinking about it and doing it. Um, even though thinking about it can be just as bad, but, um, with nervousness, you know, and excitement, this threshold is crossed. And then the fall is complete. So now you, now I have knowledge. Like once I've done the thing, um, the knowledge of those who are already doing it, it suddenly belongs to me as well. And you can just think of this as like a teenager going to their first beer party or 
like keg party somewhere. I don't know if that's still as much of a thing because they have phones, but that was what it was years ago. And I think it might be, you could say with going to meet someone on like a, a hookup or something, there's this, all of those same feelings if they're setting that up, it's like the flirting and the, and following through. But, um, I, I want to talk about, I'm not going to talk about Genesis so much. I want to talk about, um, little red riding hood. So yes, the, the, the story we all know, um, and there's a musical called into the woods and in the, and it has the story of Little Red Riding Hood. It actually is a bunch of different fairy tales and fables. Or um, And Little Red Riding Hood sings a song called I Know Things Now. Um, and this song, I Know Things Now, it's like diving right into this fall from, from the Garden of Eden. So Little Red Riding Hood and the fall are actually really interesting to read together. And these lyrics of this song contain all the good stuff from Eden but it's also in this story where this little girl is going through the woods. Uh, first of all, uh, Little Red, she rejects motherly advice as she falls for the wolf's seductive inv invitation. And after she's swallowed by the wolf, she realizes that mother was right, and now she needs someone to save her from the darkness. The first two lines of the song are, Mother said, straight ahead, not to delay or be misled. I should have heeded her advice, but he seemed so nice. So she's talking about the wolf. Like I, mother said, just go straight to grandma's and, you know, don't be delayed. Don't delay or be misled. That's don't be distracted. Don't be diverted. Don't dawdle. Don't be deceived. So, um, and then she's, she's now speaking after what has happened. I should have listened, but he just, he seems so nice. Like the wolf seems so nice. Well, the serpent in the garden seemed nice too. They both have something in common. And it's almost like these are parallel tales instructing us with uh, obvious allegory here. But Little Red Riding Hood and Eve could probably go to coffee together and hash this out for several hours. I could just imagine um, Eve saying, wait, uh, what? Did, did you say a, a talking wolf? That's, that's really weird. Um, I ran into a talking snake and Little Red Riding Hood uh, replies in the woods and Eve would say no I was in a garden but it's interesting we were both outdoors when anyway um, but anyone overhearing the conversation would assume they're like baked or tripping on acid or something but as the two of them I mean they'd be in total unison once they got into the details of this these talking animals coming at them all right uh, let's move out of the coffee shop with little red and Eve and go back to the song from the musical into the woods where little red riding hood continues and she's singing in this song um, i got i really got scared well excited and scared but he drew me close and he swallowed me down down a dark slimy path where lie secrets that i never want to know and when everything familiar seemed to disappear forever so little red um she's you know i don't think the sacred writer of genesis could have said it better than both the actual story there's multiple stories of little red riding hood and into the woods is just like kind of another telling of it um but genesis hardly could have said it better because um it's paradise lost and innocence swallowed up and she's good you know swallowed up by the wolf and eve is like punted from the garden so um she little red takes the plunge and and the excitement and scariness uh it all happens, but then the fun wears off at some point. Like this is the thing with um, the fun seems like it's going to last, but then it wears off. And in the fairy tale, 
her mother tells her to run nice and straight to grandmother's, but the wolf distracts her and uses the same tricks that the serpent in the garden uses. And there are those four D's, which I think I've talked about once before. Um, deceit, you know, he, he lies to her. He uh, Diversion, he diverts her from the path she means to go on. There's division, he divides her from her, her mother and the advice, so she's trusting him over um, who she really trusts and who really loves her. And then lastly, there's despair. She's been swallowed up and she's despairing inside the wolf. Um, the wolf, like he, he distracts her and shows her all the lovely flowers of the woods. And Little Red thinks that perhaps Granny would like a bouquet of flowers, which is not the instruction she was given. And so the wolf, who's, who sees her as like this plump meal, you know, he's, he's doing it for himself. He's trying to, to, to take her, you know. Um, he suggests that she pick some flowers in order to deceive her about his real aim. And that's for him to, you know, to eat her or take her soul, really. But um, So Little Red is diverted from the path and suddenly divided from the instructions of her mother. And she's acting against that real, the one that really loves her for this false love of the kindly wolf, you know. Um, uh, like a used car salesman in the woods telling you this car is going to make you happy and you should buy it and then it's a piece of junk and that's kind of how vice works but um, a few hours later in the story she is betrayed swallowed up and she's in that dark and hopeless place and that's despair so the musical into the woods has a lot of searching for fulfillment and um, there most famously is a song called agony where these two uh princes are screaming out the agony of the love they can't have but um, characters fall into despair over their unfulfilled desires in this movie um, another one is a the baker's wife who can't have children and you want nothing more than a child so um, but you could you could talk about this movie all day because that's what fairy tales and fables are they are these they're these simple stories that tell us more about ourselves than we would ever expect or suspect, just like the book of Genesis does. So um, so what is Little Red Riding Hood and why am I talking about it? Well, she finally comes to knowledge, and not just the knowledge of the fall, but she has knowledge of the solution. She knows that someone must set her free, and in this case it's the huntsman who he comes and slices open the wolf and sets the girl and grandmother both free, never mind the fact that it'd be hard to imagine a wolf having both of those inside him. But he does, and in the song, the lyrics go like this. Uh, so we wait in the dark until someone sets us free, and we're brought into the light, and we're back at the start. So this is a great line, and the writer of it is not a, was not a Christian. Um, as I think it was Stephen Sondheim, um, who was Jewish, but I think he was like secular Jewish. Um, and this is where what you call the seeds of the word uh, seeds of the word of the Christian story are all over our culture, even in the most secular places like Disney films. Um, so what is really happening in this fairy tale is that she falls, you know, she sins, she despairs, and she's saved by someone who undoes the mistake. And the huntsman slays the wolf, and from her darkness she is reborn into the light of the world. I mean, she is literally, Little Red Riding Hood is literally reborn, cut from the wolf by C-section, and then she is back at the start in the line. And what is the start? Well, she is once again a child. She's returned to childhood like the state she was in before that fall. 
So does any of that sound familiar? Um, well, yeah, she's fallen and, and she's reborn into the light, saved by the Savior. And once again, she's a child. So in fairy tales, we are close to touching scripture stories and don't even know it. And this is why these fairy tales and fables never die. And it's, uh, you can tell it to a child and then you can tell it to someone who's uh, 50, 60 years old and they can look at their own life and realize, oh, I was in the wolf when I was 25 or 42 or whatever. Like I, you know, they, everybody's got their path and stories, but you can look at, literally, you can look at <laughs> Little Red Riding Hood and see the wolf in your own life. Um, so Little Red goes through the fall and the restoration rather quickly in this story, while we in real life would linger long um, in the belly of the wolf, most likely, um, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. And this is because once the falling sequence begins, it becomes comfortable. We actually think being swallowed up in it is uh, where we want to be. Like, and if you, if you keep doing the same thing, the action can quicken because the authority, like anything her mother would tell her, is now exposed as a fraud and it holds no sway. So you might not get eaten right away. You might keep doing what seems like it's fun, but eventually it eats you uh, just like Samson, just like Eve, just like uh, it's this, this similar story of falling and being kind of destroyed by your own um, distraction, deceit, despair, division. And so if we believe our mistaken path is good, because what we really want is what is good, true and beautiful, if we think that what we the direction we're going is good, we will follow it for a long time. That's why um, addicts and obsessives and all these do this for they don't they think it's good. Um, it's the same reason why you get soldiers or something to do something evil because they think it's good. They wouldn't do it if they didn't think it was good. No one would no one would believe it. You wouldn't have um, soldiers invading France and um, conquering you know in World War One and Two unless they believed that was the right action to do. Same with like. Uh, Russia and Ukraine right now like uh, anyway so unfortunately the act that you believed would open your eyes to knowledge or, or save you and or make you into a god it can never deliver because it was based on a lie to begin with but we will tell ourselves you know there is always a next action or a further step something more um, a bit more extreme or different that may be the key to seeing the fullness of life where we will unlock that God level, like the serpent promises, well, you'll be like God's. And then you're like, oh, okay, I'll do this. Well, I'm not like God, what happened? Well, now you gotta go farther. You didn't do enough. You gotta do the next thing. You gotta, um, you gotta swipe right and keep going and find more. You gotta do the next weird thing. And, um, and then of course you do that and you find out that didn't do it either. And that's you know, my curse of the bananas or um, the wrestler or the black swan. They just, they gotta keep going into this because it's, they want this um, this good, true, beautiful thing that they think is there, and it's not. So, um, but the quote of Thomas Paine, there's a quote from him saying, uh, "My own mind is my own church," and so that saying, "My own mind is my own church," is like is simply his self de deception carried all the way to its lot, like its conclusion. He's elevated his own thoughts and temptations and desires to be sacred and godlike. So. To call your head a church is, is literally to proclaim yourself a god. There's no other way to interpret it. Um, even, you know, I always mention how shocking Jesus' declaration of his divinity is, how he says, I'm God, but he's saying, I am like the one God. Um, and that calling himself God is incredible. And that's why everybody's so mad. 
at him, the Pharisees are, it's the ultimate blasphemy. But in reality, uh, billions of us do this daily, just in our own minds and in, in more subtle ways. And Thomas Paine is a terrific author to read because he celebrates his fall so openly that it's like a dissection of doubt just splayed out for us to review. It's like he's got the frog pinned down all over. We can see what's going on in his mind of, with the doubt. And, and everybody's got the same thing. He's just a better writer than most of us. Um, I, think he, I think he was the one that said, these are the times that try men's souls. Maybe not. But, you know, that's, that's a phrase that sticks with you forever. It's, it's like this gift he has to write. And, and um, so I like writers who, who do this sort of uh, open purging or um, it's like open confession. And I guess that's kind of what I'm doing on this blogger podcast, whether I should be or not. But, um, but they show what the mind is like without the gift of faith. That's what Thomas Paine, he doesn't have the gift of faith. He doesn't want it. He's not asking for it either. But he's telling us, what does it feel like? For me, you know, and that's what um, I, you know, when you read that and you are on when you don't have the gift of faith, that's that is what it feels like. So um, you have this doubt, this kind of uh, um, disgust with the way people are believing it. Um, but you, the thing is, um, you, you never forget that a faith is a gift and one that is given to us, but we have to ask for it. And Thomas Paine and others, um, the middle school doubter and the, and the college kid. Uh, when I, well, that I was lacked the gift. And I, I suspect, you know, I was never asking for it then. I was not, I thought I knew and I was going to find out more uh, without it. Um, I thought it was for suckers, you know, and for fools. And until I came up against difficulties that could not be overcome without help outside of myself. And that's the, that's the, the education like of even Little Red Riding Hood, um, maybe maybe Thomas Paine never felt boxed in or trapped or in the darkness like Little Red Riding Hood, Eve, and myself. Um, but whatever the case for someone like him or other writers who cling to this like open rebellion against God, such as like Charles Bukowski, who's <clears throat> like an alcoholic writer, writing um, just not really believing in anything, kind of nihilism, or Christopher Hitchens, one of the new atheists, or Karl Marx, who just, you know, uh, interestingly called... Uh, religion, the opiate of the masses. And I've heard a phrase uh, to say Karl Marx, of course, the founder of communism. And someone said, well, if, if religion is the opiate of the masses, then communism is the methamphetamine of the masses. And that's a dead on statement, as we saw what it does with people. But for all those writers, I suspect that, you know, the idea of power, fame and recognition had something to do with their rejection. And the root of all of this is whenever you're chasing power, fame, or recognition, and is pride. It's always pride. That's uh, Thomas Aquinas believes that the root sin in the garden is pride. And it's that we want to elevate ourselves. Like that's why the snake story is very first, because he's telling us you can elevate yourselves to be like God. So it's pride that you want to be um, elevated. Um, the secret that you learn once you turn back and trust God is this, that the thing you took that took you down into the darkness, I said this last episode, is how you will be purified. So like I said, Samson with his strength, um, that becomes his Achilles heel, if you want to call it that. That's another Achilles heel. Is he's, Achilles is killed by his weakness. Um, his strength leads him into these situations, but he, it's going to kill him in the end. So, you know, I'd really like to claim this idea as my own to say, 
you know, that the the sin you take up that you love the most is what's going to purify you if it doesn't destroy you. Um, that's from St. Bernard of Clairvaux. So St. Bernard, not the dog. The dog didn't say it. Um, St. Bernard uh, lived a long time ago. Um, he said that, and it's really a profound statement. And if you go to recovery meetings, this is only a revelation to newcomers. Um, <laughs> so what St. Bernard says is known by anyone who's passed through the bottom. Like when they say you hit bottom, you come to realize that the vice took you there. Uh, but then they also realize at the same time that without the vice, they never would have reached bottom and been reborn to become free of that vice and literally like a new person. And you see it all the time. Um, the, the great contradiction of this is uh, it follows the path that Dante took in writing the Inferno and in his own life, which is arguably the, one of the greatest uh, books of all time. And it, it may be the greatest book. I've heard people say, you know, Dante and Shakespeare is everything. You know, the rest is like they're saying um, all philosophy is footnotes to Plato. Well, there's people saying, you know, read Shakespeare and Dante and you're done. Like you just study that the rest of your life. Um, but Dante, midway through his life's journey, that's how he starts it out. His the beginning of Dante's Inferno. He says, midway through my life's journey, I found myself lost in the, in the dark woods or um, he's lost. He's lost in the middle of his life. It's a midlife crisis and he's starting to see something is changing. And the only way for him to get to heaven was to go through the inferno. Um, and of course, once he gets to the bottom of hell, he's seen all the vices and sins of human beings, everything they can do and commit. And then he finally emerges onto this mountain of purgatory. So he has to go down in order to go up. And that's, that's the, the story that most recovering people understand or people who've had vices um, or had just uh, obsessions with work or uh, success or anything. Like um, you think the thing that's going to save you is the thing that's going to purify you in the end. And you have, you're holding this like precious, it's like the ring in the Lord of the Rings, you know, the ring's going to save you, but it destroys you. Look at Gollum, um, who was like a normal, happy hobbit. And then he turns into this ghoulish monster and that it destroys him. In fact, he falls into the, the fires of Mount Doom in the end. So um, the trick of the, both the serpent in the garden and the wolf in the woods for Little Red is that their false promises lead you to believe that sin will make you, it'll, that it's going to level you up, like you're going to be like God. And, but the sin actually takes you down in a spiral that slowly circles around. And this is anyone who has a drug or, or, uh, or drinking daily or whatever. Um, you think the, drinks, the drink lifts you up. It's, that's the trick. It, it makes you think you're coming up. And then you slide down just a little further. And then the next day you do it, you, the drink brings you up and then you go down. You're in the spiral. It's a downward spiral. It's not an upward spiral. And you can do that for a long time thinking that you're going up, but you're not. And then once you're finally starting to realize you're on the spiral that's going downward, like Dante in the, in, in the Inferno, you know, you, a lot of people will cling on to like a, a crack in that spiral or some kind of rock or imperfection and you cling to that spot and you think that's where you want to end up. Like that's good. So you just kind of, you're in some spiral that's kind of even, so it slows down and you can try to stay there forever, but life has a way of like pushing you down the spiral further. Once you begin circling, it's like circling a drain and ultimately you need to let go 
and pass through the drain. You got to go through the bottom of this hell, through the darkness, or you can never get back to the light. Um, Little Red Riding Hood has to be eaten in order to be reborn. Um, uh, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, uh, Nicodemus uh, is a Pharisee and Jesus tells him you have to be reborn. And this is also one of these, uh, there's like a subtle humor in the gospel because Nicodemus is this very smart man. And he's like, what do you mean you got to reborn? Like you got to go back inside your mother? And Jesus is like, no, you got to be reborn of water and spirit. And he's talking about like baptize, be baptized and believe, change of heart. Um, but Nicodemus, this like well-read education, uh, smart guy, obviously knows how to interpret uh, scripture and all these things is, is like, what do you mean reborn? Like, well, I don't get it. <laughs> you know, so we don't get it until we kind of go through it. And Dante's Inferno is one of the greatest stories about that going down to go up, going, going um, into the darkness to be reborn. So um, the temptation in the garden that Eve faces is the moment before we depart from our childhood faith or childlike innocence. Uh, modern literary people would call this a coming-of-age story or loss of innocence. Um, Jane Austen writes about these in her novels. Um, uh, in German books, novels, they'd call this a Bildungsroman. I, I don't even know if I said that right, but that means like a coming-of-age. A, a naive youth comes to be someone. Um, uh, they, they come through it to adulthood, of course. Um, Don Juan by Lord Byron at the start he's this naive youth and then he discovers like um, his with an older woman it's um, kind of like the graduate with Dustin Hoffman um, you know they're going through these loss of innocence or coming of age stories and, and like I said you, you know middle school is maybe where it happens for some but it might be like age 20 it might be 30 it depends on where how your life flows but the moment in the gospel of Luke where 12 year old Jesus is in the temple asking questions. And I quote, remember it says he's asking questions. Um, that seems included this whole scene of him in the temple for a very specific purpose. And as there are no other childhood stories of his life, there's nothing between the uh, nativity and the fl fleeing to Egypt and coming back, you know, when Joseph uh, is taking the family to Egypt because of the Herod's going to kill the Holy Innocents, they go to Egypt. Joseph has another dream. They come back to Nazareth and then there's nothing. But all of a sudden when he's 12, there's this story about um, they go to Jerusalem for a feast and then the caravan is leaving and they forgot Jesus in the temple. It's like the ultimate parenting fail for Mary and Joseph <laughs> because he's they have to go back three days to get him. He was in the temple three days. Curious. He was there three days, but I don't want to dive into numbers and things because um, I like to stick to the, the main parts of these stories. But um, that you know i always laser in on the fact that jesus was asking questions in the temple as this important aspect of the story he's he's listening and asking questions and it's like a signal of his coming of age um, of the moment where many of us would take the first steps toward that fall of turning away rejecting god as an authority and the rest of the chapter in luke or the rest of that section tells us something i think is really important as Jesus doesn't take the fall as like I did. So, or being human, of course, we all do. But here's um, from Luke chapter 2, uh, 48 to 52. So now they've found him in the temple, and this is what it says. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been looking for you with great anxiety. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. 
He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and favor before God and man. So there's several things in here that uh, Jesus, there's the worried mother and uh, Mary reminds Jesus of the parental authority over him. She's like, why have you done this to us? We've been looking for you. We're worried about you. We're worried sick, you know. We, uh, it's like any parent where they can't find their kid. And in the response, I feel like there's this whiff of rebellion in preteen Jesus where he instructs his mother about his purpose, like his, his real purpose about who he is, about who his real father is, um, and the critical. But he, then he makes this critical turn back to obedience. And you, you realize like this is the incarnate God. Uh, Mary's the mother of God, but obviously Jesus is is a higher. I mean, there's the, he's, but he shows obedience to her and to Joseph and he doesn't override his parents' authority. So the temptation of a normal person to rebel is strong. Now just imagine being God with infinite power and having to obey people of any kind. So um, that's the thing here is he's, uh, but it, since Jesus is one person of the Holy Trinity, he's, a, he's selected Mary to be the mother of God, he relents and obeys. And in doing so, he shows us how to avoid this pitfall of the first, this fall of man. So like the fall of Eve, um, he doesn't, but I like, I, I like the story because it's almost like he's leaning into it a little bit. And this is like the agony in the garden where you can see the fully divine, fully human parts in the agony in the garden where before he, the night before he dies, he's struggling with these extremely human things of anxiety and um, worrying and, 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 and here he's doing the same thing. He's like a kid starting to ask questions and say, I don't want to be ruled over, but he follows, he goes right back into this childlike faith to obedient to his mother. And then the last line of that is that he advances in wisdom and age and favor before God and man. So um, he returns like where Eve would, um, and, and Adam, they are disobedient, he obeys. And of course, that's the, the thing, same thing in the garden, where of, uh, in his garden of Gethsemane, the night before he dies, he obeys. He says, Lord, let this cup pass from me so I don't have to drink it. I don't want to suffer like this. And, but then he says, but if it's thy will, um, let it be done. Actually, this is the same thing Mary says when the angel comes to her and she says, uh, let it be done to me according to thy will. And this is, uh, the classic answer and why we celebrate like the Annunciation is because Mary says exactly what you're supposed to is like, let God's will be done, not mine. And whatever's happening to me is God's will. Um, I have to live in God's will. I need to rest in that and not force my will over his. Um, it doesn't mean you don't make decisions. You still have to make decisions, but you know that God's will is being done. So, um, so he keeps, so Jesus in this temple scene where they're, they're picking him up from where he was lost or they couldn't find him. He, he still keeps his like childlike faith intact by listening and asking questions. So he's, to me, whenever I'm thinking he's showing us how to live, it's yes, you, you should ask these questions, but you should also obey um, God because you, if you, once you stray from it, you're going to find out the hard way that uh, <laughs> just like Samson or anyone else that, uh, or Little Red Riding Hood. So when his mother comes, um, when she gives him instruction, he obeys. And I, I always feel like, you know, you look to this example of how he lives. So 
there's much more going into this. There's, there's so much more I could go into here, but I just want to stick to the fall, uh, the root sin of pride and rejection of authority, which you could, like I said, there's like this hint of it. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I was supposed to be in my father's house? And then they didn't understand. Mary and Joseph were like, uh, what? And then it says he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. So he's not saying like, I mean, obviously he could do that. He could do whatever he wants and he, but he does this correct action just as he does everything he shows us. So this 12 year old story is in there for a very specific reason. And it's got a lot of stuff in there for, uh, if you look close at it, like every gospel story, there's, you pass over these things. Um, there's three different times I've read like gospels in my life when I was a kid, when I was young, when I was, uh, um, maybe 22 in the army. And then again, I don't know, probably four times. And it wasn't until the last time where I started to see the incredible depth of these stories and there's way more to them. And you can do that. I could see it in some of these other stories because I was looking for it, but these stories require you read it with the eye of faith. So that's that gift that I, I literally believe I didn't have until I did because I asked for it. And anyway, as for us regular humans, we want to disobey, so we do disobey. Like we toss out authority and trust uh, sometimes at the same time. And we the only times we want authority and trust is if we're going to get something out of it. And that's like uh, the like the government. If we didn't think the U.S. government was was working for us, we would just overthrow it. Um, people are always talking about that, but they really don't want to do that because what would you replace it with? Um, maybe they do, but I, I'm guessing the plan you have to replace it is not nearly as good as what it is, warts and all that it is. But, um, you know, unless we're getting something, we don't partake. So uh, we toss it out. Um, sometimes we sometimes we do it all at once or sometimes gradually. Sometimes we just ignore it altogether. Um, there was a saying that in the Soviet Union, um, Everyone was a communist, but you couldn't find one. So there was like this, this idea that everyone believed in the system, but nobody really believed in it. So you had all these sub subterfuge and um, like the, the black market of things going on. Everyone was um, not really partaking in it. They didn't actually believe in it. They were just doing it so they wouldn't get killed. It was like that uh, uh, fear versus love kind of authority. And so that's one of the reasons that it didn't work. But um, you know, in, in the U S you might say the same thing. Um, but anyway, there's, there's people who don't pay their taxes. They don't do this. They're, they're always skirting authority somehow. And we all want to do that. We want to get something for free. And unless we're getting something out of it, it's this zero sum game that we live in. We want to win. Um, but as far as like faith in God, and if we toss out that authority, um, or even if we don't fully throw it out, we might keep it nearby for when a life boy is needed. So we want to make it this kind of um, like a get out of jail free card because to live with the open faith of a child, say in a teen or adult world would make us seem like kind of like a freak. Um, you know, if you consider a high school senior who would, how would he be received if he came to school excited about Santa Claus? he'd be treated like a moron. Like um, Dostoevsky wrote a book called The Idiot, where it has this character, Prince Mishkin, who is like that. He, he's like, um, he's, he's kind of like a Jesus figure. And, but I will say when I first rejected like 
faith and God. I had this notion of God as a myth like Santa Claus or Zeus. And the problem here is that this is a really immature understanding of what the Jews and Christians think of as God. And this is exactly the mistake that like the, um, the, the new atheists make when they say um, there's a, the God is just like a flying spaghetti monster and his noodly goodness is there for, I mean, they, they, cart, they make him, they satirize it into this uh, silly thing that's in the universe, uh, like a myth, like Zeus. And, and the same with, um, I think it was, was it Bertrand Russell with the, there's a teapot floating out in space. That's God. So he was using that. I was, and I've told the story when I first, um, was returning and someone said, you need to have a higher power. And I was like, I'm not really into that. And he said, well, just make that street light outside your higher power. And I was like, okay, that's really stupid. But, um, you know, when you start down that path of thinking something is above you, uh, but the thing is the street light or the or the teapot in space are not um, accurate depictions of what Jews or Christians think of as God at all. Um, if my concept of God is so small that I could compare the creator of the universe to like Santa Claus, a man that brings gifts and lives inside the world that he created, then I have no concept or understanding of the God that is being itself. So when when Christians talk about God, it's being, it's, it's this bigger thing that we can't even fathom. And that's why um, I think there's even a country song of saying, um, who really knows what God is? Well, that's the point. You don't. But you know it's something above you and it's something so far beyond you that we just say he or, um, or God because what else are we going to call it? You know, in, the, in Exodus, when Moses comes to him, he says his name is I am. That's, I, he says I am who I am, like it's like I am being, you know, um, and because Moses says, what's your name? And he says, I am. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, uh, what? Because we can't fathom it. And when people, that's what I think bothers a lot of people who are not believing, um, when people will say, well, I talked to God last night and he told me to do this. And it's like, well, what, was he like your neighbor? How do you know that? You know, it, it's disturbing to people who don't have the gift of faith because it doesn't make any sense. And it seems to make him into this like, something um something simpler but it's it's if if someone can describe it they probably don't understand it in fact it's kind of like um humility as soon as you think you got it it's gone and um there's a story of by william faulkner that bishop Barron wrote about where it's it is like hunting where you have to go out fully exposed with no weapons at all to find this um god and and that's the only way you're going to see it if you go out with your guns and you go out with your hunting equipment, you, he's never going to show himself to you. Um, you may get destroyed in the process somehow. But anyway, uh, it is interesting because that's what we do um, to protect ourselves. Even if we still believe we, we have to keep it hidden, you know, to, to just let it all out there and be like, I have total faith, which is what we're called to do, is very risky. And it gives us a lot of fear to do that. Um, after everyone else stops believing around us, like in, in high school or something or college, you hate to seem like a gullible fool. So you dust off um, like the small or you dust the small concept of God under a rug. Like it's just something you can put away like Santa. Like, yes, you can put that away because that's just a literally a myth we wrote about. Um, you think it'll just disappear. Um, one of the most surefire nudges toward the death of faith um, is when one of your closest friends 
uh, or someone you trust or an older person you admire either expresses their own doubts or makes fun of your gullibility because that's like a huge stab to the ego um, if you if you're called gullible or you're laughed at for it so I can think of several people that pointed out how gullible I was and not not just about faith but other things um, and but about other ideas or notions and once you have that wound of feeling like a gullible fool you need to find a fig leaf to cover that and if you remember from other episodes um, it's where Adam is walking in the garden and God says where are you and he says um, I, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So what is he hiding? He, and the, what are they doing? They, they're already dressed in the fig leaves. They're covering it, but God knows where he is anyway. And the, what happens then if you're seen as this like gullible person or you feel that insecurity, cynicism will, will come. It'll happen. And it's like a giant fig leaf that can cover entire bodies. It's more like a frond than a leaf. And more people hide behind cynicism today or in all ways than just about anything else because the cynic doesn't trust and doesn't hope. He's, it's not an exposed view. You don't let people in. It's the wall. So the cynic sees like the conspiracy and ulterior motive and everything because once bitten, you're twice shy. Like I, I was mocked as being gullible. Um, you're not going to do that to me again. I'm not going to get burned on that again. Or you sold me that crappy used car. I'm not going to do that again. Um, I'm not going to be laughed at again. Um, somebody beat me up, I'm going to get pumped up on uh, lifting. You're not going to do that to me again. It's all these ways, like, it's kind of like this cynicism and self-protection. So the idealist who is exposed as gullible or foolish can retreat really rapidly into cynicism as, and it's a defense mechanism. This, like, cynic appears bold because we'll hear them talking, we'll see them, um, they're puffed up usually in some way or another. Um, and you can even be it just like intellectually puffed up, but the fool who admits his faith um, or takes on insults for like trusting in God is it actually takes far more courage to, to take those slings and arrows from the world um, to use one of Hamlet's lines, you know, um, and Hamlet's actually kind of talking about some of this himself, whether it's better to hide or to take up uh, arms against this, the things that are bothering him and um, and, but you know, what, what for the cynic, why, why would we hide? And the reason why is because of the exposure, you don't want to be exposed. And so you hide and that's literally what that little line in Genesis says. So openness to God means exposure and vulnerability while cynicism is protected. And it, it's, it's, uh, feels like you're hidden. It feels like it's, it feels easier, but it's also empty because you're not opening you're not open so the difference between the two can be seen in in like any classroom in, a, in america where the student that raises his hand to ask a question is exposed and vulnerable because uh, he's interacting with the teacher like the authority and then the back row cynics mock the question and he who asked the question and anything else that didn't happen perfectly uh when they asked the question in fact if if they are if they do ask the question perfectly and get the answer they want, then they're like a kiss ass or a brown noser. So even if you do things right, you, when you open and expose yourself, you will be a target by the cynics. And actually think of um, Tom Brady, uh, the quarterback who wins all the Super Bowls and just can do no wrong. He's got a supermodel wife. He's handsome. He's got a square jaw. He does these ads. 
um, well, what do we criticize him about? Um, he's too perfect. So we hate him for being perfect. So, um, but it's that cynicism of our own selves because we're not perfect. He seems perfect. And I'll guarantee you that Tom Brady is not perfect. And he has his own insecurities and, um, and issues because he is a human being. So he's fallen as well. And that's the thing is we're supposed to be charitable to one another. Um, even those that we think we don't like or, but it's, uh, it's our cynicism that will attack them to like elevate ourselves. And the cynic, uh, that is like a visitor who will enter your life. And I call it, it's like on a, they're on a speak and destroy mission to you. They're like a heat seeking missile and they're pretty much like the serpent in the garden or the wolf in granny's bed, uh, for little red riding hood. The person, the, the cynical person may not intend to be the catalyst for your fall, but they will provoke you toward the rejection of authority, God, and anything you hold sacred because that's their job. That's what they've done. They want to like, they're like evangelists. They're pulling you over. Come hide with me. Don't be a fool. Don't be open and exposed. Don't be vulnerable. So the abandonment of the childlike faith is nearly unavoidable for all of us at some point or another. But this fall can be the greatest blessing of your life. If you do eventually return and get up again and you're not afraid to be open and vulnerable, uh, but rising from that fall, it might take five years, it might take 20 years, and it might be on your deathbed before you can overcome it. Um, and it's like the good thief on the cross next to Jesus or the many people who call for their last rites after maybe having fallen away from their their um, faith for like 50 years. So all of a sudden they're like, I want to make this right. I want to I want to be open and vulnerable here. I, I should have done this long ago. Um, you know, there's this overwhelming urge at some point to um, you'll hear people say, I want to get right with God. It's like this. Oh, my gosh, what have I been doing? Um, I've, I've I abandoned this beautiful thing and I want to come back. And but I, you got to let your guard down to do that. You can't do it by remaining uh, hiding. So overcoming this fall, uh, the fall, the fall takes time. Um, and it's not like you're just going to do it once. You'll probably do it multiple times. We don't go through the fall like Eve or Little Red Riding Hood in just a few paragraphs or pages. But once you fall, you may have to fall all the way down. Like I said with Dante, uh, you gotta, you, you won't get through the bottom unless you um, follow it down. So there's this, there's always like the idea of following the thread, keep following it. Well, if you're lucky, you can follow it and like take the zip line right through the bottom and then uh, pop out on the other side. Like some people do that. They don't even need to seem to go there, but um, a lot of us do. Uh, here's an, so there's the parable of the two sons from Jesus. This is a, one of, uh, it's a great one. I love it because it has this rebellion in it. And he, so uh, I think it applies to the return to faith. Like the story of the two sons is that a dad has two sons and dad tells the first one, go get to work, like get out to the field. And the first son basically replies, up yours, dad. Like I ain't moving. Um, and he doesn't move. And that's, that's all he says. Jesus, that's just the, how the first son goes. Um, but then later, the, uh, the first son feels bad about it. And he goes out to the field to do the work. Oh, and in, in case you didn't notice, I'm uh, paraphrasing the dialogue here. He didn't actually say, up yours, dad. Um, he just said no. So then dad goes to the second son and says, get to work. Get out to the field. And the second son says, Yes, sir. Right away, dad. You betcha. I was just about to go do just that. 
and then he doesn't move at all and sits on his butt and he doesn't feel bad at all about lying to his father. So the first son says no and then he thinks about it and then he goes and works and the second one says, <laughs> tells him what he wants to hear and then doesn't do anything and has no, like he doesn't feel sorry about that at all. Well, what's the message of that? Well, um, even the apostles and I think is the Pharisees or I can't, I'm not sure who the audience was. I think it was the Pharisees here, but um, the first son is correct. So I think that's, it's kind of an easy one. It's not like a, too much of a trick question. Uh, the second one, who is just trying to look good, he's just saying the right words. Um, Jesus is telling us that talk is cheap. You know, talk is always cheap to Jesus because he knows our heart. So Jesus actually tells the apostles and Pharisees in this, right after he tells the story that the prostitutes and tax collectors will find heaven before those who say all the right things in the temple. And then you're like, wait, what? How is this? How can that be? You know, doesn't make what? Like the prostitutes and tax collectors were basically like the synonymous with sin. You know, they were like the apostates, I guess, or the, um, they betrayed their people uh, by helping the Romans collect taxes. And then, of course, prostitutes are completely outside of society living this life of sin. And he's, and Jesus, and I, I think you could throw addicts or whatever into this um, phrase. Um, he's saying they're going to find it before you who are doing all the right things. And how is that? Well, there's multiple parables about this in stories, but the reason why the worst sinners find their way to Jesus is because their fall is so far and they hit the ground so hard. It's like, wham! You know, drunks and addicts know this. They come to realize that they've rejected God because they feel his absence so, like, terribly. It's so, it's so present, or they, I should say it's not present. Um, God doesn't provide the safety net for them. He lets them hit in order to jolt them back to life. So the people who go wild in, the fall, in their fall, um, you know, and they're like, like the, it's the prodigal son story, um, the coming of age, he who throws out God completely during their age of reason and who choose their pride of life over God, those are the ones that come become brutally aware of what, what has been lost. And you say, how do I know this? How do I know this? Well, I lived it. I mean, that's the thing. That's what he's saying is the prostitutes and tax collectors are the ones who have fallen really hard and they've done really made maybe really poor decisions. Um, but they're the ones that find it because they, they went through it. They went through the bottom like Dante. So um, as I said, the sin you like the most will start this fire, this like conflagration that purifies you. Um, there's other metaphor in the Old Testament of like the fire will burn the dross away from the silver. It's like purifying fire. So by falling, you become aware and addicts worldwide will tell that tale. Um, the addiction is the, is the way you fall. Um, there's things that lead to it before that, but you think that's taking you where you want to go and it doesn't. And you, the recovery is this rebirth, this return. So many are the ways of the path to addiction. And it's not just the things you think about, uh, that you see on movies where it's just drugs or alcohol. There's, um, it's sex or success or, especially today, vicarious success through your children. People are obsessed with this. Um, think of the battle hymn of the tiger mother, um, where there are people just everything to get that kid through, um, you know, get them to Yale or Harvard or whatever. There's 
um, it's it's probably the most works based faith of all today is the um, getting your kids to be successful because you're so obsessed with it. It's like the most obsessive thing of our world. I think it's a symptom of a sickness and search for meaning. But that's not the only ones either. Um, other ones, the paths that will get you to the bottom through Dante's journey is it's those things, but it's also gambling, just lying, um, codependence, stealing, setting fires. Uh, there's there's pyros. I mean, uh, people have different obsessions like inhalants, nicotine, gaming, shopping, um, the cutting yourself people do. Um, I think I already said gaming. Say like gaming again, pornography, uh, tanning, coffee, like uh, just this obsession with coffee, obsession with work, fitness or social media. Any, any addiction can get you there. And anything that you think is going to make you, um, is going to elevate you can be the thing that's going to purify you. So you can fall to the bottom and hit the ground hard through any of those channels. It's not just the, the, the big ones. But like he says, the um, every there's a lot of uh, uh, prostitutes and tax tax collectors in our world. They just have different addictions, and the the words we would use today are different than what in the first century uh, he had to communicate that. So, um, if you have an experience in your life that mirrors the parable of the prodigal son, uh, the story of returning home is really powerful. That's why everyone loves that the parable, and they will talk about it till the end of time. Uh, for those who think of Santa Claus as the same as God, I've never met anyone who hits bottom and wakes up to realize that it all started when they rejected the jolly old elf. Like, no one is using the comparison of Santa to God, um, except for like immature atheists. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be mean to people that are dis uh, unbelievers, but it's not for serious doubters. If you listen to like a debate between a serious atheist and like a serious um, Christian apologist, they, they don't even go into that. Like <laughs> that's like the, the middle school, high school, Santa versus God argument. It's not for the, the deepest thinkers. So, but that, that's, it's a comparison that you make because, uh, you know, here's this person that promises all these things and you get it at Christmas. Well, they think of that's like, um, you, that's like doing all the right things and getting to go to heaven, but that's not like what serious, uh, people think about when you get down deep into the existence of God arguments and all of those things. And it's certainly not where people say, yeah, I was on my uh, last dollar and I, I woke up in jail. And but then after that, I, I started to pray to Santa Claus and everything just turned around. That doesn't happen. So um, <laughs> the awakening, uh, the awakening begins when you are like cut out of the belly of the wolf, like Little Red Riding Hood by like uh, uh, the creator and savior God, uh, Big G, uh, comes and, and rescues you. It's not by the fat mythological character who wears red and white and has reindeer. So in order to be set free, you must you have to like give up and surrender and give back that authority that you took to the loving God, like this embrace. It's what you you took it. You thought you took it um, and you, you really didn't. But um, you're, you're clinging to this like idea that you're in control and you have to give it up. So that's what the prodigal son does. He returns home and he's giving up. He's surrendering. You know, he comes back like supplicating. He's like kneeling and uh, the dad runs out and hugs him because the dad wants him back so badly. So 
Um, and many of us just refuse to do that. We can't forgive or we can't surrender. Um, you claim you cannot, you, I can't do that, or you're not ready. I remember talking to someone, I was saying, well, for me, because he was trying to quit drinking, and he said, well, I said for me, it was, it was through prayer and, and uh, belief, you know, and he said, I can't do that. I, I just can't do that. And I said, well, that's, I get it. You're not ready. You know, that's what are you going to do? You got to ask for it. You got to, you have to be willing to be willing. And those sayings don't make any sense until you really say, okay, now I'm, I'm willing to be willing. I surrender, um, surrender to win. My point in all of this is that in order to return to the faith of a child, you have to have abandoned the childlike faith in the first place. Otherwise, you would never have left that state. So this is really important, I think. Um, the faith of a child is what you see when you watch a child just sing. <clears throat> like they don't care who's listening or they dance in the springtime puddle. Um, or the, it's like having, it's when a kid has a loud conversation in a quiet waiting room or they like run around outside naked without awareness that that's illegal. Like <laughs> they just don't care. Uh, they're like this pure, open and vulnerable child. Um, the faith of a child is really, it means to be exposed and vulnerable and then, but you're also free. So, you know, if you believe that Goldilocks really did eat the bear's porridge, that's like the faith of a child because you're listening to the story like, wow, yeah, that's, uh, I can't believe she went in and tasted the porridge and you, you have to be open. So to return, you must be open. And that's actually what Jesus says when I think he is that he opens the ears or the eyes. I don't know, but he says, be open. And that uh, it's this, that's the words, be open is, is the answer. You have to be open. You must not care about your exposure and the vulnerability. And once the gift hits you, you just don't care. And the cynics just don't bother you anymore. So going back to that whole ostrich with their head in the sand, um, the reason people who have that gift of faith return to them look stupid to you is because they don't care that they look exposed and vulnerable. And they're going to keep doing it because it's like this life-changing gift. So... And you trust that God's will is being done regardless of what mockery comes your way. Um, and literally, you can't, you can only return to something that you left behind or abandoned. You can only surrender to something that you rejected. So um, you, that's the thing. When they say repent and, you know, the kingdom of heaven is here, repent means to turn back. Well, why does he say that? Because everyone's turned away at some point. That's why the fall happens. It happens to everyone. I, I saw, I look at the Gospels and I think of Jesus' own life as the model for living. Like I said, it's this perfect example of how we should live. Uh, what I've often wondered, though, about is that 18-year gap from age 12 to where he's found in the temple to his baptism by John the Baptist, which marks the beginning of his ministry. And could it be... You know, I always wonder perhaps that Jesus gives us the example in his own life, staking off this period of time, like when we venture out, when we mature, and these middle years are precisely when the wheat plant is growing but not yet ripe. So going back to, but the grain of wheat, the grain of wheat dies and falls to the earth and makes more wheat. Um, he's, it's this, this idea of maturity in the wheat plant is why this is another one of these that has so much to it with like two sentences there's uh, but a grain of, of a wheat plant doesn't exist until it is mature i mean it's just a stalk of grass growing there's no seeds on it the grain is 
Um, so until it's mature, there's uh, a grain of wheat cannot die. Like if a, if a, if a plant dies before it has any wheat or grains of wheat, it'll, it's, it's just going to be compost. There's no seeds. So to mature and produce grain, a plant must go from like childhood or a seedling into adolescence and finally adulthood. And only then can grain fall to the ground and produce more wheat. So it has to grow, reach adulthood, die, and then be reborn through these other grains. Um, this 18-year gap in Jesus' life story is like speaking something to us. We know that Jesus did not sin in his initial temptation to rebel. And like that scene in the temple where he, uh, is obe he obeys his mother and father. He keeps his faith. Of course he does. You know, he's Jesus. But that temple story shows us how we were supposed to live and avoid the fall. Like to avoid that first fall of our life. Uh, of our life. Then the story goes dark for like almost two decades and we don't know what's happening, but we, we can assume Jesus is working construction jobs with his, with his earthly father, Joseph. And somewhere in there, Joseph dies and we know little else except for that around the age of 30, Jesus emerges and begins to speak and heal. And, you know, this is one of those things you wish you knew more like, well, what happened uh, to Joseph? How did he die? Uh, what happened there? Was it, did he come, did the ministry start right after that? Or what did Joseph die 10 years before? You know, you just don't know, but we know that Jesus was a carpenter. So he's working this ordinary job. Um, he's, he's performing the duties of life uh, as a carpenter. And that's one of these important things that speaks out of that is that yes, you should, you should work and have an honest living. And then, um, you know, ideally, He's, he even shows us then when he's like reborn. So now that's not to say that he fell. I, obviously he doesn't fall. He has, he, uh, after he's baptized, he goes out to the desert and 40 days of no food has the three major temptations and rejects them all. So we know he doesn't fall. Um, but we do, we do. And it's in those 18 years of this, this gap that we don't know what's happening in his life. But most of us could see from when we are, teenager to whatever age there's this period of time of rejection rebellion whatever you want to call it wild everybody's got their wild stories about when they were younger unless they were like gifted and had faith and stayed on track but um you know in the end jesus basically is saying who you know who he's coming back to heal is he doesn't come back to heal the uh the ones who are already healthy he's coming back for the sick so you can look at that as um, going to the bottom is is actually getting closer to him. Uh, another saying I've always heard is that uh, you can run away from God and you'll run right into the arms of God. So that's like one of these things like I'm running away, looking back, don't, don't know where I'm running away, I'm running away. And suddenly you're right back to where you started, like Little Red Riding Hood. So uh, she's cut out and everything's the same as it was before. So, um, but... Okay, so let's let's talk about this. Uh, the baptism of Jesus is the first metaphor for us to observe in the grain of wheat parable. As I was saying, um, the grain of wheat parable can be like um, spiritual rebirth or when you actually die and like go to heaven. There's like a couple of ways to read it in my, at least the way I see it, as baptism is being reborn in the water and the spirit. And that's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. He's got to do that. Um, you know, so as I mentioned before, the unless a grain of wheat dies, it's is too 
couple meanings and the first, it's really the act of baptism fits like a puzzle piece into that grain of wheat parable or story. I don't even know if it's considered a parable exactly, I guess, but the second metaphor is the literal death of our body or Jesus's body and his resurrection. So the first death and rebirth is something we can carry out like right now, like baptism um, is something people do. Of course, Catholics would do it at uh, infancy or if people are coming into the church as an adult, like convert, um, other denominations do it uh, at like teenage, adult, whatever. So, um, but we can do that. That's the, that's the act we, we do um, to go and have like the Holy Spirit be put upon us, the mark. And, but we, so we can't lay down our life and take it up again like Jesus. He's the only one who's ever been able to do that. Uh, but baptism is the action we can perform here and now for the spiritual death and rebirth. Um, in fact, we can actually be reborn like every day. You talk about like daily conversion. Um, in fact, the purpose of the sign of the cross that, um, you know, the, you say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit um, is to renew our baptismal vows every day or every time you do it. In fact, when you baptize someone, that's what you say. You can do it in the name of Jesus. And it's not just a cool hand motion that we do in Catholic Church for kicks or to get attention or to start and stop things <laughs> like a Morse code uh, beginning transmission, ending transmission. There's a purpose to it. And this is one of those things so ancient in the church that we don't even remember, I think, what it's for. I, I know there's a lot of people that do, but we need to remind ourselves now and then there's a free ebook from Word on Fire on the sign of the cross. There's a link in the text of this, but uh, for some illuminating insights into the depth and meaning of that hand motion. So when you do it, you should be very deliberate about it and thinking those things. But, you know, I think a lot of people, we just do it automatically. It's like a robotic movement. So, all right, dare I venture into further interpretation? That's, that's the one thing I do worry about with this um, when I'm, I'm trying to give my two cents. Um, I wish someone wiser than myself was here with me, like uh, Trent Horn is someone I like to listen to, or uh, Father Mitch Pacwa, or Saint, I mean, really, it would be nice, like Saint Pope John Paul II, or someone just to guide me back from wherever I get to the precipice of bad interpretation. So they'd be like, just not just shake their head at me, like, don't go there, just stop, just stop, you're, you're getting out of control. Um, all right, so here's the finale, I guess, for this one is uh, Jesus knows that we're going to fall and turn away. That, that's anyone who's pretend. In fact, that's why he does, he's, he's mad at the Pharisees. Um, he practically implies that, you know, you're lying if you can't admit that you've turned away. He knows our hearts, and that's why he goes at the Pharisees for like this false representation. The accusation he makes that the Pharisees centers around them. Um, always being clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside. You know, all the, the clean laws of the Old Testament where they're, they're doing their best to, to keep it. Like they're trying, they're trying very hard to do what they think God wants them to do. Um, they're, they're, they believe this, you know, and then God comes to them and says, that's, you're, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of good things maybe, but you got all these other things wrong. And he's, he's guiding them, he's correcting them. And that's the thing, though. The Pharisees are going to great lengths uh, to keep these rules, but they're like misinterpreting them and Jesus comes to guide them back. So Nicodemus being the one who's very curious, you know, about Jesus, he's confused with that conversation about rebirth, thinking it's like I, I, 
got to be reborn from my mother. What? Um, it's just so easy to bash on the Pharisees because Jesus points out their error or errors um, because they're so legalistic in following rules that they think that the rules are all that matters and that no change of heart is needed. So they, you know, there's justice and mercy. There's rules and um, like allowance, I guess, if you want to call it that. And they err on the side of like justice and rules. And um, there's other people that will err on the side of mercy and allowing anything to happen. So, of course, Jesus like goes right in the middle of that. And it's not both are wrong. So, um, but and he's saying like the change of heart is needed and you need to follow the rules. <laughs> so it's there's mercy and justice. And it's it's one of these things that is amazing because we see this as even back then where the Pharisees were like the conservatives and there was probably people in the culture who were like, let's just adopt the Greek and Roman ways. And the Pharisees were like, no, we're trying to keep this just like saying you can't boil the goats like the Canaanites. We're doing the same thing. We're trying to keep it. And Jesus is like, I'm here now. There's new rules and the new covenant is starting. So um, the Pharisees are like these protectors of the culture. You can still see this now. I mean, Democrats and Republicans play these roles um, where the traditionalists, where the progressives. Um, and, you know, in my opinion, neither party works. Uh, both are not in line with um, like the life of Christ. So um, they're so the Pharisees are like um, they think their behavior is following God's will of the Old Testament. And, um, you know, the, the progressives are like, no, there's this other way. We just do whatever we want and we're just all good people and um, hakuna matata. So the, um, the Jewish people are always being hemmed in by the other cultures around them. They still are, you know, over in Israel. And, you know, you have to keep in mind, they're still like the chosen people. So if you believe in all of, um, you know, this doctrine that they still are the chosen people. And from the time of Canaan boiling their goats right up to the infiltration of Rome, right up to now where, you know, uh, modern day Israel. So the Pharisees are doing their best to keep the covenant, to save the traditional culture and to keep their, the Jewish people set apart from the like crazy pagan polytheistic world that they see around them. And of course, the 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 world around them doesn't see them as crazy. They think the uh, the Jewish people are crazy, but it's, it's obvious that the uh, Jewish people are very set apart. And what great lengths Nicodemus and company will go to that defense of the culture. Um, they, they'll, they follow all 600 and some rules that then they try to. And of course, it turns them into hypocrites because you can't. Then suddenly John the Baptist shows up and says, everyone must repent and be baptized. And then Jesus shows up and takes it even further, saying a full rebirth is required. Um, and none of this makes sense right away to people like Nicodemus or his colleagues because they feel that they've never taken the first fall. They've never taken the fall of Eve, and that's the danger. Um, they think they've never rejected God. And Jesus comes to tell them, oh, yes, you have. Like, you are human beings. Your flaw is thinking you haven't. That's the flaw. Um, that's the, the biggest thing that can block you, like, to make you spiritually blind. And the fact that um, Nicodemus doesn't know he's taken the fall means he's like spiritually blind despite his entire life being about spiritual things. Um, he's, he's like bloated with pride. That's kind of what he's, uh, Jesus is always kind of pointing out is the Pharisees' pride. Whereas the prostitutes and tax collectors and the prodigal sons of the world are all too aware of their own fallen nature. So they, they understand what Jesus is saying way before 
the educated and wealthy classes understand. And that's still the way it is today. So it's the funny thing of the education, as I was saying, if you have a lot of education, you're able to read deeply, you read the Bible as literature, you read historical criticism of it. You don't see, you don't have the faith because you don't get it. <laughs> you don't think you're fallen. Um, you have to fall and realize you're fallen in order to surrender. So, so what I'm trying to say is this, I guess, um, how can you return to something unless you've gone astray in the first place? So you have to realize you've gone astray before you can return. Um, Jesus knows we all go astray and that's what he's telling the Pharisees too. Um, in fact, the Jesus prayer, it's called the Jesus prayer of where the tax collector and the Pharisee are both praying. The Pharisee's praying. He's so glad he's following all the rules and he's going, he's wonderful. And, and the tax collector is standing to the side of him saying, um, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Like the ultimate prayer is to say that and realize, um, I have to surrender to you. Have mercy on me. Um, I am, I want to follow your rules, God, because I've gone the other direction and found out what happens. So, um, you know, he, he, Jesus knows we've gone astray and that will, will not do it just once, but repeatedly. And it, this is not just like a middle schooler or uh, college student problem. It's everyone. It's the problem is shared by everyone in all ages and all phases of life. So um, again, if you believe that Jesus is God, then you, you must read everything that he says as coming from God and that it is God. God knows everything written in Genesis because he himself beamed it down to the sacred writer. So he knows about the fall in the garden. He knows about our rebellion and he's all too aware of our attempts to hide from him. So if Jesus, who is sinless, gets baptized at 30 years old, uh, despite not needing to be baptized, but to show us how to live and be reborn, uh, might we not suspect that he is deliberately telling us and here by us, I, I definitely include myself. He's telling us, yes, I know you spent many years rejecting me. I know you turned away from me. I saw you closing down all those bars in Wisconsin and acting like a fool. Um, I saw all the other things you don't even want to talk about. Maybe things you haven't even, you haven't even figured out yet. That, um, <clears throat> And at least, he's saying at least Little Red Riding Hood was only picking flowers. Like you were doing, you were out of control. Um, I know how you mocked me. Um, and said I was just a imaginary being like Santa Claus and just invented to control people. Um, yeah, I saw that. I saw all of that and more, especially the things that only you know about and haven't told anyone. But as you know now, I'm real. I'm here. And I came for you as one of my lost sheep. I waved many signs in front of you and you chose to ignore me. But I'm glad you are listening now and you can see me again. So follow me. Follow me. From now on, I will lead you, be baptized, and believe. <laughs>